With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. First, a word from our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitor is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 750 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance program, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors, at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. In this first episode of 2020, we take a look at the James Bond-like flight of Carlos Goshen to avoid prosecution in Japan. He was secreted out under the nose of Japanese officials who had on-site personal surveillance and electronic surveillance. He is now in Lebanon, which conveniently has no extradition treaty with uh, Japan. We take a look at some of the top compliance failures from 2019 and some of the top compliance winners from 2019, both articles in Compliance Week. We ask, does compliance have a dark side? Jeff Kaplan explores this question. What about the combination of monitoring and compliance? Where does that intersect on your Zen diagram? Next, we look at the dangers of fraudulent access requests under the new CCPA. And we consider the differences in public company governance and JV governance. What is the story of corruption returning to South America? The SEC announces self-disclosure, cooperation, and remediation to combat accounting fraud. And 31 days to more effective compliance program. This week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with uh, Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen, for this week in FCPA, episode 186, for the first week of the new year, ending today, January 3, 2020, the Goshen the Ghost edition. As we ring in the first year of the new year and indeed new decade, we now have a new character in compliance and cor- corporate governments. Although he's an old character, he's new to compliance, James Bond. And we're going to explore that at length. Uh, Jay wonders if the Patriots run is at an end. Uh, And we had a lot of uh, interesting compliance stories. So, Jay, uh, you want to just jump right into it? Sure. So uh, I I guess we'll we'll do a little bit of Hollywood, a little bit of international intrigue. 
And uh, as you said, we're going to look at Carlos's uh, Gosen's uh, mysterious disappearance from Japan and reappearance in Lebanon. And uh, we quote two different articles. One is from Ben Dooley on the New York Times, and one is from Nick Kostov at the Wall Street Journal. And this, uh, we'll, we'll go with the Times first. Sitting in his rented home in a tiny Tokyo neighborhood one day in December, Carlos Gosen walked John Lesher, a Hollywood producer, behind the Oscar-winning 2014 film Michael Keaton's Batman through the plot of his own story, describing what he sees as his unjust imprisonment by Japanese officials and his struggle to prove his innocence, said people familiar with the discussions. The theme was redemption. The villain was the Japanese justice system. The talks were preliminary and did not get far, people said. But in any case, Mr. Gosen was preparing to deliver a shocking twist. He was facing a trial later in 2020, filed by Japan, fled Japan for Lebanon this week, avoiding criminal charges of financial wrongdoing. All the elements of a Hollywood-style thriller were there, a private plane whisking a fugitive into the sky, multiple passports, rumors of shadowy forces at work, and people in power denying that they knew anything about this. It's not clear exactly why Mr. Goshen, when he began planning his escape, but his meeting with Mr. Lesher was one of several that he had during the last months in Tokyo as he contemplated the ending to the story of his flight from the Japanese justice system. His escape followed months of planning, as I said, and the former head of Renault-Nissan Alliance uh, fled Japan to his homeland in Lebanon, where he believed he would get a much more friendly legal environment to try his claims of financial wrongdoing. The Lebanese government had for months been asking Tokyo to send Mr. Gosen, a Lebanese citizen, to Beirut, where it was proposed he would stand trial on corruption charges, according to a senior Lebanese official. Japanese authorities arrested Mr. Goshen in late 2018 and have accused the former automaker uh, head of a series of financial crimes. Uh, it seems like everything came to the breaking point around Christmas time when uh, not only was Mr. Gosen denied contact with his wife, but he was told that this trial may be broken up into multiple part, parts and might take several years. At this point, he decided to take his own um, safety and his own freedom into his hand and using uh, different folks. He uh, was able to take a small chartered craft from Japan to Turkey to refuel and then get himself to Lebanon. So it's a fascinating story. We link to both of the show notes. But, um, Tom, what do you think from um, from a legal perspective about the move? And what do you think that what options is to leave Mr. Goshen right now? So before I get to that, Jay, I, I do have to ask on the record, uh are the rumors true that you've been approached to uh, write this, uh, uh, turn this treatment into a screenplay? I can't comment. Uh, you can neither confirm nor deny. Yes. <laughs> well, the uh, the next series of questions really comes from not from me, but from Conspiracy Tom. So, Conspiracy Tom wants to know: Was the Japanese government in on this? Uh, did they realize that they had a problematic foreign national who was just going to cause a disruption? Uh, perhaps uh, bring uh, the Japanese government into disrepute uh, in some manner so that they did they facilitate this? Because you have to remember he was under 24-7 electronic surveillance, 24-7 video surveillance, 
24-7 personal surveillance. Um, so lots of questions from Conspiracy Tom about how this actually was allowed to occur. So uh, it's great, though, to see James Bond making uh, his appearance in the uh, greater corporate governance and compliance world. Uh, the thought of uh, Carlos Goshen standing trial in Lebanon for corruption is probably beyond laughable. Um, he'll never stand trial for anything. Uh, I suspect he won't be holidaying uh, in uh, Asia-Pacific region any longer. So uh, I guess... Tahiti uh, is off, uh, probably even Australia, although it may be burned out uh, by the time he gets there. So um, the leaders, uh, the cedars of Lebanon are re- reputed to be some of the most beautiful trees in the world. So I hope he enjoys that mountain view. Lots of beach and coastline on Lebanon. So, um, you know, lots lots of sand uh, for Mr. Goshen to, uh, to play in between his toes while he contemplates uh, what could have been. So uh, a great story. Uh, if I'd brought this to you, Jay, you would have looked at me and said, Tom, no one would ever believe this. Uh, fiction has to be believable. So uh, just going to show once again that in the greater world of anti-bribery, anti-corruption, uh, it many times it is stranger than fiction. And just when you thought you'd seen it all, you see something new. Uh, next up, first of two articles from our friends at Compliance Week. Uh, Tom, what are the top compliance failures of 2019, according to our colleague, Jacqueline Jager? Well, Jacqueline uh, had a great wrap-up of some of the failures. You're going to highlight some of the successes uh, that Kyle Brasser wrote about. But um, some of the failures included uh, tech, big tech, obviously Google, Facebook, Cambridge Analytica, uh, continue to be in the news. Uh, I think Facebook has probably uh, been the most at snubbing their nose at uh, the public and saying, T.S., baby, uh, we're going to keep doing what we're doing. We don't care who it hurts. So um, it's going to be interesting to see how long they can have a viable business model with that attitude. Uh, the Justices uh, Antitrust Division is now looking more closely at uh, Facebook, Google, Apple, and Amazon as well. Uh, opioids and drug uh, manufacturers, distributors had a very bad year, although they have to say they brought that on themselves. We had a $1.4 billion settlement from Reckitt Brinksker Group. Uh, Insys Therapeutics had a $225 million settlement. Novartis had a $700 million settlement. There's another $48 um, uh, billion proposed settlement with Johnson Johnson, Teva, uh, and then distributors. So uh, the op- opioid crisis uh, comes to roost. KPMG had a very, very bad year, culminating in a $50 million settlement with the SEC over allegations that it not only stole confidential information belonging to the PCAOB in an effort to improve its uh, annual inspection of KPMG audits, but that it cheated on internal exams uh, from another uh, enforcement action and whether they uh, whether uh, the partners understood a variety of accounting principles, not much giving you much um, uh, comfort there. Uh, telecom had a very, 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 very bad year. Uh, MTS and Ericsson both had huge FCPA enforcement actions. And of course, our good friends, banks behaving badly, continue to behave badly. Uh, JP Morgan's compliance uh, function uh, really took a hit when it recommended cutting ties with Jeffrey Epstein, yet they were overruled by bank executives. 
uh, Swiss Bank ignored recommendations. Its compliance officers uh, not uh, or put controls in place to help reduce <clears throat> U.S. clients evading taxes. Um, the Deutsche Bank continued its uh, imbroglio going forward. Um, so banks behaving badly continues to be a theme. Jay, what about some of the compliance successes? So as you said, the successes come to us from Kyle Brasser. Uh, number one on his list, Apple. Apple set itself apart from its peers with a strong stance on data privacy. CEO Tim Apple, also known as Tim Cook, spoke in Brussels in October 2018, slamming those companies that put profits over privacy, and he doubled down on his pleas for the United States to adopt its own version of the European Union's GDPR. Uh, Walmart, in spite of tragedy that struck the supermarket chain in August when a gunman entered its store in El Paso, Texas, and shot 46 people, killing 22, the act of terror came just a couple days after two Walmart employees were killed by another employee at a store in South Haven, Mississippi. Walmart decisively responded by not only tightening its restrictions on firearm sales and banning civilians from carrying firearms into its stores, but it also vowed to share its compliance controls regarding the sale of firearms with other people and other companies. Walmart's stronger stance on gun control inspired others, such as fellow retailer Kroger, to also request customers not openly carry firearms in their stores. Starbucks, Target, and the Wendy are among companies that had already had these controls in place. 2019 may well be the year of the whistleblower, as lo- although the record uh, number of whistleblower cases did not top 2018, the unnamed whistleblower that sparked an impeachment inquiry into President Donald Trump over allegations of corruptions has received the most attention. But there are also high-profile accusations against General Electric, Walt Disney, and other large corporations. More importantly, Compliance Week's commends the compliance officers that turn to whistleblowing when their advice to executives goes ignored. Unfortunately, these individuals aren't always celebrated and, in fact, in many cases become the target for retaliation. Next up, we take a look at the business roundtable. They were uh, received kudos for advancing the purpose of cooperation of what a modern business is supposed to do. And looking at its principles in August, they issued a communication to all stakeholders that including employees as opposed to just financial stakeholders, as previously uh, noted by Milton Friedman. Each of the stakeholders is essential, the Business Roundtable wrote, and they commit to deliver value to all of them for the future successes of companies, communities, and countries. While this may be another case of we'll see it when we believe it, having the names of CEOs of companies like Amazon, American Express, Apple, Target, Walmart, and many others to sign on gives people hope. Finally, in the last uh, last group to get commended, the U.S. Women's National Team, few would be quick to characterize the women's soccer team's fight for equal pay as one of compliance, but how this case plays out in the courts could affect the landscape for female employees everywhere. In fact, inspired by the 2019 World Cup champs, Senator Jackie Rosen, Democrat, Nevada, no relation, and A.B. Klobuchar, Democrat, 
Minnesota, sent a letter in July to the chairman of the Senate Committee on Commerce, Science, and Transportation, pressing for him to hold a committee hearing on the significant issue of pay disparity. So these five companies are serve as shining lights towards uh, their stance on ethics and compliance and what happened last year. Uh, next up, Tom, uh, Jeff Kaplan considers his uh, conflict of interest blog as does compliance have a dark side? So, yeah, Jay, this is a article that uh, our good friend Jeff Kaplan wrote about a draft uh, chapter in a book called The Dark Side of Compliance. It's to be uh, published in the forthcoming um, Cambridge Handbook on Compliance by Professor J.S. Nelson at Villanova Law School. Uh, and she wrote that compliance systems can be abused. The fact that the positive image of compliance justifies establishment of tentacles throughout an organization, for example, enabling su- surveillance, invasive monitoring of the workplace. It allows management to push employees to cut corners, therefore creating uh, conditions ripe for corporate wrongdoing. Um, the author, uh, Professor Nelson, also says that compliance mandates control and obedience to the rules, uh, i.e. reminding of us all of our, our parents, which, of course, we all will rebel against. I just made that last part up, but it's all true, um, that workers should not be sent messages um, that they should enhance profits. Uh, I have to just say that's about the most inane thing I've ever heard, uh, because if you don't have profits, you're not going to have a company and you want to have a compliance function. Um, but the uh, uh, Jeff really points out some of the uh, errors in the analysis. But it, if people are really thinking this, Jay, and, and frankly, I don't know anyone else uh, that is, it certainly presents challenges. Um, in the United States, I think most uh, employees expect uh, to be evaluated uh, in uh, some form of a, of a compliance manner, uh, to have some form of compliance evaluation. The uh, uh, monitoring of employees is something that's done routinely through uh, financial checks, oversight, um, um, internal controls, uh, delegation of authority, and segregation of duties. And that's uh, well-known and, and well-accepted. So, um, the book is not out yet, um, and the chapter is not out yet, uh, so perhaps uh, there's some substance in there that we should uh, think about uh, or, or at least uh, respond to. But uh, I really have not heard uh, people bringing up uh, kind of the dark side and he whose name will not be mentioned, i.e. Lord Voldemort. Uh, I, I was never really thinking that he lived in compliance Um but perhaps he does. Your thoughts? Perhaps he does indeed. <laughs> uh, next up, Tom, uh, I continue my uh, series uh, wrapping up the year and wrapping up 15 years of independent monitoring excellence, where I spoke to the president and founder of Affiliated Monitors, my company, uh, Vindy Siani. And uh, we decided to take a look at the combination of compliance and ethics programs with independent monitoring, as well as two DOJ memos that have been key in the selection and the application of independent monitors. Uh, According to Vin, the marriage of independent monitors and compliance and ethics programs has been facilitated through the evolution away from strict regulatory compliance to more ethics-based compliance. Early on, AMI had independent monitorships in the healthcare industry around issues such as billing and coding, 
From there, the focus of regulators expanded, and AMI began to address issues such as codes of conducts and conflicts of interest. In the late part of the past decade, AMI began to move into the Department of Defense independent monitorships around suspension and debarment. Suspension and debarment officials were very much focused on the ethics side of compliance and the oversight of companies going through suspension and debarment process. Administratively, administratively, the suspension and debarment officers would use suspension and debarment rules to have companies demonstrate that they met requirements under FAR, the Federal Acquisition Regulations. Ethics considerations included whether a company had installed a code of ethics, whether there was training on compliance and ethics programs, and whether there was a disciplinary process and investigative tools that included a hotline. DC Annie said that we're beginning that AMI was beginning to see different agencies picking up the elements of compliance and ethics programs. Next, he briefly discussed the first memo that affected the compliance industry, the Morford memo, which came out from the DOJ in 2008. In this memo, it codified many of the different issues of ethics and compliance monitors, selection criterion for independent monitors, and including the need for subject matter experts. Then we looked at the Benskowski memo that came out two years ago, and this memo discusses limiting the use of monitors to only certain situations where they might be warranted, specifically where the company does not have an effective ethics and compliance program. So really, uh, we've got one more episode, uh, which will wrap into the new year on corporate compliance insights, and then we'll talk about his final reflections on 15 years of excellence in monitoring, and then at that point, we will move forward firmly in our 16th year. Uh, next up, Tom, we've got uh, danger of fraudulent access requests under the CCPA. What are the folks at uh, Davison Polk thinking? So this comes to us from the New York University a compliance and enforcement blog, and it's an interesting article about the requirement for companies uh, in responding to customer data access requests. This is a well-known component of GDPR, and now here we are in January 3, the now enforced California Consumer Privacy Act, CCPA. Um, but the uh, piece uh, blog post points out that you have to uh, authenticate who is making the request, and you need to have reasonable authentication procedures in place uh, so that the information you dole out as a part of a customer uh, uh, access request, data access request, is actually legitimate. So um, the authors believe that U.S. companies may be facing a flood of access requests like those already inundating uh, European businesses. And to comply with CCPA access requests, companies must develop a system agile enough to identify subject matter and respond to requests within the statutory time limits. So uh, an interesting issue. I hadn't really thought about fraudulent access requests, uh, but companies who might respond to a fraudulent access request by giving out confidential information certainly could uh, find themselves under greater scrutiny. Uh, so next up, we have a piece uh, coming to us from the Harvard Law School Forum on Corporate Governance, and it's a real thoughtful piece on the differences between public companies and joint venture governance. And the governance of public companies is profoundly important. 30 years ago, CalPERS, a major institutional investor and leading corporate governance advocate, 
argued that the corporate governance was like the grain and the balance that makes the difference between wallowing for long and perhaps fatal periods in the depths of the performance cycle and responding quickly to the correct to correct corporate the corporate course. Time and again, research had borne out the link between good governance and strong shareholder returns. Increasingly, public companies are entering into joint ventures to access new markets, combine capabilities, and gain scale. The largest oil and gas companies have used this tactic over the past several years, and joint ventures now make up 50% of the production coming. Uh, meanwhile, large uh, automakers and industrial firms, including General Motors, Siemens, and Volkswagen, derive substantial share of their revenue, profits, and risk exposure from joint ventures, especially in China. By almost every measure, the governance of these joint ventures is pound for pound more challenging than the governance for public companies. So what makes joint venture governance tougher? Water Street Partners has written extensively on the joint venture governance issue, including its challenges, links between good governance and performance, and on the contractual terms and practices that drive governance excellence. The aim of this note is to simply spell out why joint ventures governance is such a challenging issue compared to public company governance. There's an amazing uh, two and a half page chart where they take a look at the difference between public companies and JVs and uh, what the three major Key implications are include um, director training. JV board directors need training on how to perform their role, training which is anchored in the general principles of good governance and also reflects unique features of joint ventures. Director selection and expectation. When nominating executives to serve on JV boards, companies should have a clear-eyed view of which competencies and personal attributes a nominee will need to do the job well. They should further seek to nominate individuals who will realistically be able to dedicate time and thought to thoughtfully govern the venture and be able to remain on the venture board for a sufficient period of time. And the last one is contractual agreements and corporate governance policies. Lacking a global regulatory framework, JV legal departments and government policies need to do more work defining how the governance of the company will actually operate. More broadly, there are opportunities for companies in certain geographies, namely Europe, Saudi Arabia, China, and industries to work together to influence regulatory policy on the government of governance of joint ventures, such that regulatory framework is more clear with regard to unique issues that joint ventures introduce. Given the materiality and risk of joint ventures, isn't it time for companies to up their game on joint venture governance and stop pretending that governance is substantially the same as public company governance? The authors think so. So as I said, we will link to this in the show notes, and I uh, heartily recommend that you review. I'm not sure if this next article is sad or disturbing or both, but the New York Times um Ernesto Ladondo and Leticia Casado reported that the pendulum has swung back and Latin America's corruption fight may have begun to stall. And obviously, if it's uh, stalling, that means uh, it could swing back the other way. Um, the uh, Many of the uh, politicians who were convicted of paying bribes or rather receiving bribes are now out of jail. They're seeking to regain their political status uh, they're making life extraordinarily difficult for whistleblowers and those who fought them. So we're going to have to see where this may go. 
in uh, Latin America. Uh, obviously, the president of Brazil has uh, come out pretty strongly against any additional anti-corruption um, prosecutions. So um, Brazil has really led the way. So it's going to be interesting to see if uh, Brazil, they were recently criticized by the OECD for their lack or, or their uh, uh, turndown as well. So uh, we're just going to have to watch this one going forward. Um, uh, there was an interesting OFAC slash trade sanction uh, case uh, that Dylan Toker over at the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance uh, Journal uh, wrote about. Uh, you want to tell us about that, Jay? Yeah, we, we don't usually see cases coming out this way. Uh, Exxon Mobil Corp uh, will not have to pay a fine for continuing to do business with a Russian state-run oil company amid increasing U.S. sanctions on the con- country, a federal judge ruled. U.S. District Judge Jane Boyle's ruling this week voids a $2 million fine that the U.S. Treasury Department had imposed on the Irving, Texas-based oil giant back in July of 2017 for allegedly violating U.S. sanctions when it entered into contracts with Russian oil firm PAO Rosneft. Exxon was fined for executing agreements with the state-run Rosneft after President Barack Obama issued sanctions against Russia for annexing Ukraine's Crimea region. Even though Rosneft wasn't added to the U.S. sanction list, the contracts were signed by the company's chief executive, Igor Session, who was. Exxon in 2018 said it was abandoning its venture with Rosneft after failing to secure a waiver from President Donald Trump. The lawsuit was seen by some sanctions lawyers as an opportunity to clarify an ambiguity about how OFAC enforces sanctions against blacklisted individuals. The agency has since released additional guidance on the issue, cautioning companies against entering into contacts signed by blacklisted individuals. In the lawsuit, Exxon pointed to a press release and public statements by the White House saying that the focus of the sanctions was on blacklisted individuals' personal assets rather than any companies they manage. Judge Boyle on Tuesday admonished Exxon for not seeking further guidance from OFAC, and the judge, however, said that OFAC ultimately failed to give the company fair notice of interpretation of the Ukraine sanctions, which was a violation of due process under the Fifth Amendment. So a bit of a parrot victory for ExxonMobil, but um, some clarification nonetheless as to what OFAC and the, and the judges are looking for. Tom, uh, this week you had several different broadcasts that premiered on the Compliance Podcast Network. What would you like to direct our listeners to? So, Jay, I'm extraordinarily pleased and excited to uh, announce on this show um, that in the month of January, I'm running a daily podcast on 31 days to a more effective compliance program. The first five days uh, are posted. Obviously, on the third day, um, it will be day three. But on day one, I took a look at what 2019 brought to compliance. On day two, uh, the measurement of risk in a compliance program today, posting at noon Central Time, will be uh, leadership's conduct at the top. Tomorrow on the 4th, we're going to take a look at moving tone down through an organization in day five. Um, we'll look at the uh, board of directors and operationalizing compliance. Uh, this podcast series is one of my uh, top podcast series I've done over the last several years. 
huge numbers of people and huge fans of this. If you're the compliance practitioner, this is the podcast series for you. I give you uh, about five to seven minutes of uh, things you can think about for your compliance program with three key takeaways that give you things you can do at little or no cost each day for your compliance program. At the end of 31 days, you'll have a great set of uh, ideas that uh, you can think about uh, either implementing or enhancing your compliance program literally over the next year. So if you're a compliance practitioner, if you're listening to this podcast, uh, check in on um, 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program. I've set it up as a separate iTunes channel, uh, so I'm waiting on iTunes approval for that. Uh, And when that comes out, you'll be able to listen to these podcasts. I'm currently posting them on the FCPA Compliance Report, uh, but they'll have their own iTunes channel so that you can listen to them straight through um, without having to to search for them on my uh, uh, other channel. So, uh, it's a great series. It's a great bone boon for the compliance practitioner. I've had a ton of fun uh, updating it. Uh, we had lots of compliance uh, information come out last year uh, in the form of the criminal sections, uh, FCPA and compliance guidance, the antitrust sections uh, guidance, and, of course, the OFAC compliance framework. I've incorporated all of those into uh, this podcast series going forward, Jay. Sounds like you've got it all. Uh, one question, you, you got Baby Yoda in there or not? Uh, first of all, Jay, I, I must chastise you. It's not Baby Yoda. Uh, that is a misnomer. Uh, that's a colloquialism. Uh, it's the package. So, uh, or the kid. Or the, client, or the kid. kid. Yep. But not Baby Yoda. We have no official designation of a planet of Yodas even. Uh, so uh, we're looking forward to uh, Series 2 in the home world, although uh, I would also alert uh, watchers or listeners to this podcast, check out The Witcher. Uh, it's a great uh, series on Netflix, uh, lots of blood and gore. I mean, lots of blood and gore. Uh, a little TNA if you're into that sort of thing. Which, uh, so with hunchbacks, right? So, yeah, keep, uh, keep the children <laughs> away if uh, you have sensitive eyes and ears. Um, but um, uh, some really interesting uh, series out. And, of course, the morning show on Apple TV. Um, Sean Friedland and I are going to do some podcasts around that. He wrote a great piece that we linked to last week uh, in our show notes. But, uh, Jay, I guess, um, you know, other than your now no comment comment about uh, writing the screenplay for uh, the Carlos Goshen, the ghost story uh how are you feeling about uh saturday evening uh as you can see when we set up our podcast we have a little name that you can put in the lower left hand corner and my uh name for this week's broadcast is tb12's foxborough finale so uh i think uh the master is going to get bit by the student mike vrabrell who many of you remember was a linebacker extraordinaire for the Patriots. And he had pretty good hands coming out of the backfield and had something like an 80% touchdown percentage. I think uh, Vrabel uh, has resurrected Ryan Tannehill's career. There are something like seven and three since Tannehill's been the starter. I think um, the Titans continue on. I think it's Brady's last game in Foxborough and Rumors are he could be coming to the West Coast and I might have to become a Los Angeles Chargers fan. But uh, I think the Pats are are washed up Uh, when they play on wild card weekend. They do. They are not as successful 
as when they have the bye. All six Super Bowls were won with the Patriots having a bye, and they would have a very long march uh, to the Super Bowl. They'd have to go through both Kansas City and Baltimore. So I am uh, less than optimistic. What do you say about your fellow Big Blue Michigan gunslinger? So uh, I think they're going to pull it out. Um, one one final win for uh, TB12. So um, you want to take us home on that somber note? Sure. On <laughs> that somber note. Uh, you know, sometimes you got to get realistic. It's a new year. It's 2020. Uh, we're looking with increased division. On behalf of Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist and the voice of compliance, and myself, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, episode 186 for the week ending January 3rd, 2020. The ghost in the ghost. No, I uh, am not writing the screenplay edition. Thanks for joining us. Have a great weekend, and we'll talk to you in the coming week. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can email Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you'll join Jay and I again next week where we take a look at some of the week's top stories and, of course, visit about the NFL playoffs. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks so much for listening, and we look forward to visiting with you again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.